Welcome to the Clear Choices Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Eigner, and it is my unique privilege to bring you intriguing conversations with people who have made the bold choices necessary to elevate their lives and create a positive impact on the world. By hearing their stories, I hope you walk away more motivated and more inspired to do the same in your life. Because we all have choices to make. My goal is to help inspire you to make more conscious and powerful choices, clear choices. Now let's get started. Hello and welcome Clear Choices listeners. Welcome to another episode of the Clear Choices podcast. I have an illustrious guest today that I'm looking forward to introducing to you. But first, I just want to remind everyone of uh, the coaching programs that we have here at Clear Choices. Uh, We'd very much like to hear from anyone uh, either on which topics they're most interested in being coached on and to doing an evaluation and and talking a little bit about my business and life coaching services. So you can contact me about that at rob at robeigner.com. That's R-O-B at R-O-B-A-I-G-N-E-R.com. Now, more importantly, on to our uh, very important guests. Laura Abrams is professor and chair of social welfare at UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs. Her ethnographic scholarship has examined experiences of youth in the juvenile justice system and in the transition to adulthood. Currently, she's also pursuing policy research in the area of youth justice reform, which incorporates cross-national comparative studies. Dr. Abrams has served as an expert witness for capital cases, and has provided expert testimony regarding solitary confinement, standards of care and correctional facilities, and community reintegration. She's the author of two books, Compassionate Confinement, A Year in the Life of Unit C, and Everyday Distance, The Transition to Adulthood Among Formerly Incarcerated Youth. Over 80 peer review articles have been written by Dr. Abrams. Welcome so much to the show. Thank you for having me. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, it's great. It's an important subject. So I'm going to start uh, with just a really basic question. What made you uh, choose to be in this field? Okay. I knew you were going to ask that, but I was trying to think back. And I usually start with the story of being out of college in 1989 having graduated with a bachelor's degree in liberal arts history and not knowing what I wanted to do. And so after a period of traveling and thinking about my future, I knew I wanted to make a difference. And I knew that I wanted to do have a career that ultimately aimed to improve people's lives. And I didn't know exactly how I was going to do that. But I applied for some jobs, and my first job was at a group home. And this was a group home for youth, uh, girls specifically, who were either runaway or delinquent or whose parents had abused or neglected them or both. And in doing that work, and I hadn't considered social work as a career, uh, it kind of set the course for not only what I would pursue in graduate school, but also in terms of, you know, studying confinement and studying incarceration just became a path for me, partly because of that job. Mm -hmm. 
And that was in what year and where? <laughs> so that was in 1989. Um, I graduated from college in Boston. I went to Brandeis University. And that at that time when I finished college, there, you know, like many 22-year-olds, you're not sure what you want to do. So you take a job and see where things go. And this was a very underpaid, difficult job and probably the hardest job I've ever had, you know, where we're like 22 or 23-year-old young people working with teenagers who were assaultive, who, you know, staff were sometimes uh, put in dangerous situations. But we were just told to kind of do the work without a lot of training. And uh, the, the whole experience helped prompt my idea of getting a master's in social work at that time to to learn how to do things better, you know. Were you just moved by what the the, the <laughs> challenges you were seeing and, and felt compelled to want to make a difference around that? My goal of making a difference really started in in high school even and, and college. Like in high school, I started to think very much about people who were less fortunate than I was, started to think about, you know, children who don't have advantages and what can we do beyond the, you know, mentoring or tutoring or, you know, we, in American society, we have this really individualistic notion of like lifting people up. But I wanted in college, I really deconstructed a lot of that thinking through women's studies classes and sociology and gender studies and, and ethnic studies courses, which led me to a different way of thinking about more about tearing down structures that oppress people rather than lifting people up. Mm -hmm. That said, I took a job doing direct services because that was kind of an entry level job that I was able to get as a, as a 22 year old inexperienced, you know, person who had an interest in, in bettering society. How long was it from that that you became a professor, that you taught your first class? Um, so in 1991, I moved to Berkeley to get my master's degree in social work. And then I worked after that for a few years with young people in school settings. And then I went back to school in 1996 to get my doctorate, and I finished in 2000. So this is my 20-year anniversary of of receiving my PhD. So I taught classes starting in graduate school. So around 1996, 1997. Yeah. So no, it you, seems like a long time ago, but yeah, I mean, it, it, I guess it is. I mean, you know, 23 years, is not, a, <laughs> not a short amount of time. True. So, so when you, you know, you obviously you made a, you, you know, you made a choice to try to impact your community. And then when you mm -hmm. decided to get into teaching, I'm curious, mm -hmm how you thought about the responsibility, if you will, of teaching other young people, trying mm -hmm. to have, have them be vehicles of positive change in, in the world. Is that something that came into your mind as a teacher? Like, what do you, how did you view that responsibility? Totally. Like, I felt like, okay, you know, there's every year, there's all these social workers and people in helping professions that that really have the mission of change and 
not just change, but positive social change, you know, reducing racial inequality, reducing gender inequality. And yet we're also limited by the job options that are available, which are usually about helping individuals. And so I, I felt that by going into teaching, I could have a bigger influence, not only through my writing, but also deliberately through teaching and training, you know, lots of master's students every year and doctoral students. Um, so actually the teaching and training and mentoring part of my job is something that I consider to be very important. And is there something when you're when you're connecting with these students, is there something that you think about in terms of like, you know, like a strategy in terms of like how to have the most impact on them so that they go out and kind of, you know, fulfill their their optimal impact on society and however that's going to be for them? What I really try to do is give them the skills of critical thinking. So, for example, you know, a person walks into a mental health clinic and appears to be, you know, homeless, uh, unkempt, uh, maybe having paranoia, delusions. Okay. So, yes, immediately you think, what does this person need? Medicine, shelter, whatever it is. But can we take a step back? Can we, can we learn about that person's life story? Can we, can we take the time and the consideration to consider the problem from multiple angles? Mm -hmm. So I think in, in teaching and training social workers, what we ought to instill is that moment of pause and thinking about who is this person and who is this person in their context, you know, and how am I as a social worker, what does my interaction with this person have to do with the context that I find myself within. So it's really, it's not, it's not just about doing the work. It's also about recognizing your importance and your humility in that moment. And every single time you interact with a, with a client. Um, I also try to instill upon my social work students, what an honor it is to be part of people's lives at these critical times. You know, we don't always think of ourselves as a proud profession. We're underpaid, we're undervalued. You know, uh, social work is kind of like, it's a, it's a highly undervalued profession, like most women's professions, nursing, teaching. So what I try to impart is not only my enthusiasm for the profession, but also how humbling and what an honor it is to be brought into people's stories, you know, and, and their narratives of change. And it's, it is a unique experience, not unlike what you do on this podcast. You know, oh, yeah, I appreciate, I, I, uh, I, I appreciate being even uh, mentioned in that same company. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm curious, uh, you know, you mentioned something that I hadn't thought about. It kind of makes sense to me because I know, you know, my wife's a teacher. Teaching is tends to be a female dominant profession. My sister's a nurse. It's a female, <laughs> a female dominated profession. I never really contemplated that that social work would also be female dominant. What is the ratio of men to women in that field? It's probably ninety percent female. Wow. And do you feel <laughs> what would be the benefit if it became more 
more men were interested in that that space? Well, first, just because of the way our society is still gendered, I think it might be a higher paid profession. So I think that's one value. Um, but the other is half our clients are men. So, you know, it would be very beneficial to work with more young men. Have men young men have male role models in, in the context of this relationship. Yes, I think it's critically important to have black men and Latinx men and, you know, people who can relate to clients better than what has historically been more of a white female profession, like teaching and nursing. So let's let's pivot a tiny bit. So you wrote you wrote two books Mm -hmm. and just writing a book because I've thought about it. I've I've (laughs) I've played with it. I've actually worked towards it. You know, it's, it's a daunting experience. So making the choice, A, to write a book uh, was a big decision that you made. And then actually going through and committing to what it is you were going to spend probably years writing about was a big decision. So talk to us a little bit about that process and the impact sure. that that had on your, on your profession. So in my career in a highly competitive academic institution like UCLA, which is how I was trained, I went to Berkeley. You know, uh, the the gold standard of an academic career is generally articles. You know, so you write a peer-reviewed article, meaning that you submit an article blindly to a journal. You know, you get it reviewed by, you don't know who the reviewers are. It's double blind. But so publishing an article is kind of like how you earn tenure and all of that. So, and some fields are more book-driven. Mine is not. So once I had tenure, I realized I could do a little bit more of what I wanted to do. And I had all these years of field notes and and data from direct observations and ethnography that I had done in juvenile justice facilities. Um, So the first book, Compassionate Confinement, I decided, you know what, I'm just going to do this. I've waited all this time. I have tenure now. I want to see if I can write a book. And so that was kind of a pretty, it was actually a fairly sudden decision. I just one day said, you know what, I'm, I want, I'm ready to do this. So, so that's kind of what I did. So obviously, you know, both your books are very related to one another. So obviously there's something significant that you see as problematic in our, in our, um, you know, prison system and particularly how it relates to youth. So what, what's the problem? Give give listeners who know nothing about sure. this some perspective <laughs> on why is this such a problem? Well, at the very basic level, the biggest problem that that I've worked in and seen firsthand and then done research on is what do we do? The big question, the grand tour question is what do we do with young people who are violent, who are having troubles, who aren't fitting into our social norms. So crime and justice and deviance is all about, you know, when did people cross the boundaries and did they get in trouble? We have, and this this goes back to my work at the group home, there's a subset of young people that bounce around between systems. They're identified usually early on special ed, mental health challenges, foster care, 
you know, and they end up in the criminal justice system. Now, why that is partly is we don't really have substitute care for these young people. We don't, we don't have good ways of figuring out like, what does this young person need and how are we going to give them the resources to be successful? So they're already on a pathway to not succeeding most likely. Yeah. And, and also being damaged and damaging to others, you know, let me ask you a question. Can I, yeah. can I just ask oh, for a yeah. stat? What percentage? Like, if, so you know, you have a. I'm just going to make up the number. Sure. 100,000 juveniles go into the detention system. Mm-hmm. What percentage of those 100,000 do you think come out as functional adults versus ones that are re-entering <laughs> that system over and over? Um, maybe half, maybe less. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know because the cause and effect is like they might not have ever gotten there, you know. But the big picture is you have a lot of young people that, you know, we don't know how to care for. We don't know how to help. Then you have a system that generally harms people and, you know, in rare cases makes youth, helps youth get better, but generally makes people worse. And then you have a big public investment in locking up youth because we think somehow that makes us safer, right? When really those approaches are very damaging for society and for young people. So it's, um, you know, I went into this field not knowing that the systems are so broken, but I've come out feeling like, you know, on 20 years later, really understanding how we need to. We need to take a different path. So you can you can wave one magic wand. You okay. can in, influence the 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 city, the county, the state, the country, and change this whole infrastructure. That everything you've written about and mm-hmm. and studied okay. and taught. What would you change? That's a very hard question. It's a good question. It's a good magic wand question. Um, I think. Probably the biggest change that would make the most impact with young people is got to be about providing every young person educational resources that they need. You know, I think that's we often put a lot of stock in education as the great equalizer. It's not, as we know, education is dramatically funded differently based on where you live and racial dynamics, um, geographies. But, you know, if we were to pay as much attention to education as we do to saving businesses from going under or for bailing out billionaires, I think we'd be in a much different place in society. I appreciate that. And it actually makes me um, think of someone that you introduced me to, uh, a Christian Branscombe. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so here's an example, and you know, people have heard uh, him interviewed on on this podcast. And for those of you that didn't listen to that episode, he's a gentleman who committed murder at the age of 19, was incarcerated for about 23 years, and truly did come out a changed man. So he's obviously not the norm; he's the mm-hmm. exception. Mm-hmm. So, so how would you define what choices a guy like that made to mm-hmm. come out and truly be a productive part of society? Like when I met him, like someone I was like, I. 
I really like this guy. I want to be friends with this guy. He's intelligent. <laughs> and I can't believe he murdered someone. It's hard for me to, you know what I mean? So right. what, what did he do or how did the system work for him or with mm -hmm. him that was different than so many people? I think a couple of things, you know, one is there's always these, you know, the exceptions of people who make who do well, even under like horrific circumstances and being imprisoned for life is a horrific circumstance period. Right. Christian to me, cause I do know him had the advantage of being, you know, highly intelligent, highly emotionally reflective, and also hooking into a group of peers and even staff that were supportive of his work in prison. Right to develop those support networks, to have the art studio, to... Yeah, he was sort of empowered to, to create and lead something, and he probably never had had that in his life. Exactly. And you know, the other big... Well, another... I, I don't know if I like my first answer about education, but in terms of criminal justice, another change I think we need to implement on a broader sense, which relates to Christian, is the power of of second chances, of, of realizing that even in policy and practice, that people do change, you know, or at, they, least, or at least they have the capacity to, I mean, I, I will say, absolutely. To, if, if I can interrupt you, yes. I, I would say, I would say that I myself, before having met him face to face, uh, was guilty of sort of this built in bias of like, oh, felon, murderer, like bad person. And okay. He's a good guy. He made a bad mistake when he was a kid, you know. Or, and you know, yes, and and there's adults that make bad mistakes that change. So, you know, this work and the the work that Christians doing in healing, dialogue, and action, which is a restorative justice agency, and restorative justice meaning looking at alternative ways of bringing people together to heal versus just crime and punishment. That work is very consistent with social work values, I think. You know, yeah. it's about looking at the greater good, you know, and not just the moment of, like, punishment. That's right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was a powerful um, – he was, he was a powerful person to, to learn from for me. Let, me. let me switch this a little bit to sure. what's going on right now in the world because there's so much going on right now in our backyard. <laughs> Yeah. In, in Los in Angeles, <laughs> in your front yard, backyard, that that is so related to what you do, what you've been doing for a long time. So I guess I, I want to start, I'll just share a number and then we, uh, a stat, and then we can talk a little bit about the Black Lives sure. Matter movement and how that relates to your causes. So I just pulled up a simple stat and that is that, you know, uh, currently African-Americans make up about 13% of our population, 12, 13% mm -hmm. of our population, but the prison population in the United States, mm -hmm. and this is from the NAACP mm -hmm. website, is 475,000 African-Americans and 436,000 white people. Um, yeah. That's the stat I pulled. You know, you might, you probably have much better data than I you do. You mean but in the U.S.? Or in, in, the, in, in the U.S. Okay. Yeah, it's more, I think it's more than that, but yes, Blacks and black men in particular make up, I believe, 40-something percent of the U.S. prison population, way more than their population representation. 
so yes, that is no matter how you slice it, uh, and whether people believe that's due to behavior or poverty or racism, the facts are the facts that black men and black women are highly overrepresented in our jails, prisons, probation, parole, and criminal justice systems writ large. So, so you know, obviously, we're this podcast is about helping others either look at their own choices or looking mm-hmm. at what choices we can make in this case as a society. Sure. So, so when you look at that from your educational perspective, mm-hmm. what you teach, what you write about, and you look at that stat that we, we just mm-hmm. dissected, mm-hmm. What, what's the, is the problem that, you know, blacks are often socioeconomically disadvantaged and that leads to more crime? Is it, is the problem emanate more from, a, a police system that might be biased towards them? Like what, what, how do you see it? So for me, this is all about the bigger bucket of systemic racism. So when you look at how this country was founded, when you look at the roots of capitalism and all the way from, from 1619 to now, you know, black people in this country have never, ever been afforded a fair shake in our society. And I believe that as a white person. And I see in studying history and looking at, you know, looking at our history critically, how severe that is, you know. So one of the things I've been more educated upon recently is how is the issue of wealth. So we talk about poverty driving crime. It does drive crime. Poverty always drives crime. If you think about the behaviors that are most we associate mostly with crime, which is inner city drug trade and violence. Okay. You know, but there's consistently one group in this country that was enslaved and one group where the wealth gap has never really caught up, you know, which is black folks. And I don't look at that as an individual failing. I see it as very much connected to the history. And in that, if people have watched the 13th and other or read stuff by Nicole Hannah-Jones in the New York Times, you know. Or How to Be an Anti-Racist also. Yes, yes, I love that book, um, is about also the connection between slavery and policing. And so you can't really disentangle systemic racism from understanding the mass imprisonment of Black people in this country. So, so what do you say as a white person? What it is you feel like you are obligated or inspired to do mm-hmm. to help make a difference in this? Mm-hmm. I think that's a good question. You know, in this moment of awakening, so to speak, in the wake of George Floyd's murder and the protests, I've had a lot of white people that are generally liberal and, you know, wanting to make a difference, kind of ask about that and like, what can I do? And I think part of it is it starts with educating ourselves, you know, the reading how to be anti-racist, reading about books by black people, like Michelle Alexander's book on um, mass incarceration we need to be educated. But more than that, I think we also, we need to act as well. Now that, that becomes a little harder for people in making the 
the translation from awareness to action. So naturally you're going to ask me, so what do we do? (laughs) Right? Exactly. (laughs) Okay. Um, Well, you know, I think there's a range of activities from all the way from educating our friends and families, speaking up, but also doing things locally. So for, and this is where I see that we can make a difference. So in every local, everywhere you live, wherever you are on this podcast, you have a city budget. You have a city council person. You can ask how much of our budget goes to the police and why? How is it being spent? Mm -hmm. You can ask your local city, you know, what percent of people that are arrested are black, Hispanic, white. You can find out more information. You can get involved in local politics. You can vote for people to represent you on city council and school board who are anti-racist, you know. Mm-hmm. Let me yeah. ask you a question. I'm sorry, Laura. Um, yeah. You know, you brought up the, you know, the police funding. And obviously that triggers for me the the notion of defund the police. And like, I totally <laughs> understand. And I think I think most people understand that what's meant by that is not to actually 100% defund any police force. Uh, it's to consider reallocating some of the funds so that they can be put to use that might cause there to be less crime or less incarceration, unfair incarceration or whatever, right? So social work would be a part of that. Mental health would be a part of that. I totally get that. I'm curious how you, how the, 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 the branding of the word, you know, defund the police, how that resonates with you. Well, I, for one, think it's a great pitch because, and I know it's not popular among white upper middle class liberals, but I embrace it fully for two reasons. One is we talk always about defunding education, defunding social services, defunding healthcare. So the the spin of like defunding the police is shocking. And I like that but it's normal for everything else we consider important in society. So that to me is what the value is, is that people are talking about it. If, if it was reform the police. It wouldn't get as much, it wouldn't be as, as polarizing and create as much dialogue. Also, I think people really need to think about why is it creating so much dialogue? Mm Mm-hmm. We defund things all the time, arts, education, preschool. You know, we've defunded our whole mental health system in America. Why are we all of a sudden concerned about defunding another societal institution when we don't get concerned about these other things? You know, the other reason I don't feel in a position to critique the slogan is that it came from the Black community and the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think part of being an ally in anti-racism as a white person is to support the, the language that's been chosen by the community. Mm-hmm. I'm not directly affected by racism the way that black people are. And so it's really not up to me to drive that. It's up to me to help support the movement. So, so to that end, and I'm, I'm, partially playing provocateur here, yeah, right? I don't like, mind. <laughs> um, so, so, so given what you just said, how, how do you feel about um, like the reparations discussion? Um, that's a really 
I think that's a really important part of this whole discussion. I have had different feelings about reparations over the years, but given recent conversations, I have come to fully support the idea of reparations for slavery. I probably not surprised given my other stances, but yes, I do. And how would you, how would you, cause I think, I think what most people think is uh, I'm guessing is that they go, <laughs> Hey, I totally get it. You know, that these families for generations had either, uh, you know, of course their dignity stolen, but also, you know, their property and assets. And, you know, look at the Black Wall Street story that kind of reemerged recently, et cetera. So I totally get that. And then at the same time, you know, and I can even speak of myself, it's like, oh, well, but I wasn't the cause of any of that. And I, I have, you know, African-American employees and I, you know, I have (laughs) African-American friends and my kids have, you know, they, they, they have, you know, they have kids, you know what I mean? Like, like, I'm not, I'm not part of the problem is, you know, what I think a lot of people think or say. So why am I being, why am I responsible for that when it wasn't me or my family that did it? Yeah. And, and yeah. And then there's another argument, you know, Nobody here currently living was enslaved. Okay. You know, and none of us were slaveholders. Okay. You know, to me, that's not an argument. That's, that's a way of side skirting the issue. It didn't happen when it should have happened, right? We don't have as Jews any issue about the fact that there were reparations for the Holocaust. You know, we don't have issues that we had reparations for Japanese internment. Right. I would say I, I, I don't I don't disagree with you in terms of the import. Right. Uh, you know, and having parents that are Holocaust survivors, I, I would say a difference is, and this is maybe unfair to the African-American community a little bit, but the, one of the differences is those, you know, the, the, the Holocaust was tried in an international court. The mm-hmm. reparations started shortly after that. So it was yes. literally the generation of Nazis that, in, that created the harm that was created on the Jewish and other populations were directly held responsible for the reparations. Yes. And I, I agree that that's a big difference. But the question is, was ra- has racism been that much ingrained in our society in every social fabric that it never did happen? Why didn't it happen? I think we have to look at that very seriously. You know, and the other thing is, I also tend to believe that until some reparations has happened, or even this process of holding people accountable, even if they're not alive. I don't know that we we're going to really move forward. You know, I want to believe that we can. I think we can move forward from systemic racism, but I do think that having a reparations process needs to be part of that. Part of that, part of the healing. You know, it's interesting that you say, I've, I, that you, in your words, you know, I want to believe we can move forward. I, it's so funny because for not funny, haha, but peculiar or interesting that I felt like we had until recently. And then I realized how backwards we have really gone or how stuck we've been uh, around this subject as a country. But that makes sense because we were supposed to believe that. So the whole white liberalism myth 
is that we had moved on. Our friends have black, our kids have black friends. We have black coworkers, you know, that's all part of this myth of meritocracy and liberalism that has actually caused us to be more stagnant and fallen back in the wealth gap and fallen back in, you know, black people who are killed by police officers and the arms of the state. And the reason why is be, it's, there's a book called, or an article, I can't remember, it's called, you know, racism without racists, right? Because it continues precisely because nobody sees themselves as, as, as part of the problem. It's essentially apathy. It's not just apathy, though. And I don't want to blame people for being apathetic. It is part of the ideology that we grew up with post-civil rights. Mm-hmm. I was talking to my parents about this, too. We, we were sold a myth that these problems had been solved. We were told that as long as we didn't see difference or see color, that we weren't racist without understanding that racism continues in wages, in employment, in, in incarceration, in violence. When, when you've been taught that racism is just an individual attitude, like prejudice, it distorts the whole core of the issue, which is inequality, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I don't blame my friends. I don't blame my family for not understanding that. It is a way of thinking that's, that's different from the ideologies we were raised with, you know? So I'm going to pivot back yes. a little bit to criminal justice. Thank you. And thank sure. you for that. This is a very, very engaging um I think it's going to bring up a lot of comments from the the listener base. So I really appreciate this. So back to back to your field of expertise for a second. I pulled a quote for you that I just wanted to get your response to. And the quote is, criminal justice is what happens after a complicated series of events has gone bad. It is the end result of failure, the failure of a group of people that sometimes includes, but is never limited to the accused person. That's interesting. And by the way, that is from, I don't know if you know the source, Paul Butler, Let's Get Free, A Hip Hop Theory of Justice. Oh, wow. You know, in the larger philosophical way of thinking about criminal justice, I I would agree with that statement because there's individual actors in situations but justice is an ideal, right? Justice is about equity. Justice is about opportunity. Justice is about also a feeling of being treated with dignity. And our criminal justice system doesn't, you know, it, it falls short of almost all elements that you would associate with that word justice. If you think about justice as just getting back at someone, then maybe that's something you know, that's a different definition. But the word justice on its own has a lot of positive connotation, right? Yeah, I, I see it as fairness, like fairness before you get to the courtroom or the prison. Yeah, that doesn't happen right now, unfortunately, in most cases. You know, the deck is really, from everything from bail and the inequities and, you know, what people are tried with and plea bargaining and, you know, being held in jail because you can't pay bail versus the severity of the charge. 
yeah, the deck is pretty much stacked and it's very much stacked against poor people and people of color from the get go. So, so let me yeah. get let me get into the mind of a very well educated professor and author. <laughs> sure. um, how how do you go about making the choices uh-huh. you need to make when you look at like, hey, I let, let's just say you have control over, hey, we're going to be able to impact the the youth or juvenile yeah. uh, uh, incarceration system in, in Los Angeles County. Okay. How do you, what are the steps you go about to make the choices that you believe will have the outcome you want? I mean, what's the process? What's the, mm-hmm. the logic and the thinking and the research? Like, how do you go about such a, a big undertaking, not knowing for sure the outcome? It, you know, as academics, I think you, you have a bunch of playing fields that you have to make choices around. So for example, will my research or my teaching or my activity benefit society? You know, is it feasible? Is there funding? You have to also think about your career. You know, um, is this something that's going to help or hurt my career? You know, not all the work that I've done is, is purely just beneficial to society in the sense that it's also you know, in every academic, there's a bit of shameless self-promotion too, right? We like to have our books and our our bios and our, you know, we like to be experts, right? So I can't say that all the choices I've made in my career have been purely for the benefit of society. I hope that they have benefited society, but, you know, to be in all honesty, yeah, they've also benefited me, right? I think... I think there's a little bit of that in in <laughs> most all of us. So congratulations, you're also human. <laughs> yeah, but like, yeah, it's not like I'm just this like altruist, you know, uh, pure altruist. Yeah. So what what I'm hearing you saying about the process is that you've got you've got the, the, in big decisions and choices like that. There's so many factors, some of which you can't control, that it's sort of hard to create the ideal scenario. It is. Nothing's been ideal. And as my career has progressed, I've felt more safe and comfortable in doing bolder things. Mm-hmm. So for example, you know, I had an idea just fairly randomly about, hey, in other countries, we don't have youth involved in the juvenile justice system before they're age 14 or 15 or what have you. Wait a minute. Why do we have such young kids charged with crimes? I just literally like had a random thought and I I started to go through a process of like understanding the law and sold my idea to a bunch of other academics and activists and you know had to pitch it and and negotiate it and we got some a little bit of money to research this topic and ended up writing a state law and I didn't know that was going to happen but I knew that something was wrong with California law, why we didn't have a minimum age. And uh, the minimum age is when like a young person can even be prosecuted for a juvenile offense. And our California had none. And I looked What's at the, the lowest in the country? Zero. Wow. That's unbelievable. I had no idea. No, I didn't know either. So I started, I mean, look, zero, but, okay, nobody charges a two-year-old with a crime. The reason being, we don't assume they're capable 
of intentionally doing something. You and I have had (laughs) two-year-olds. When they hit their brother, you know they didn't really mean it, right? Um, But the question becomes, at what age? Are they responsible for that? Very subjective. It's like, is it five? Is it seven? Is it nine? Is it 11? So California had, had no age law. It did have a law about you have to be, you know, competent to stand trial and blah, blah, blah. Other protection, so to speak. So anyhow, we ended up working with State Senator Holly Mitchell on writing a law that would bar any young person under age 12 from juvenile justice involvement, which didn't involve that many youth in the state anyway, maybe (laughs) 600 a year, you know. But it symbolically was important. Now, back to your question. The interesting thing for me is that this all started with an idea, but every choice along the way to persist in the work when people didn't think it was an interesting idea, to try to get partners, to try to do the legal research, to try to, the bill failed the first time, to go stick with it for two years. You know, those, yeah, that all was choices that I think ultimately um, I learned a lot about sticking to it, sticking to something. And I, and I, it it impresses me and I hope you're um, I hope you take pride in this, that, you know, you, you took the action, you know, like part of it is, you know, you had the idea, you had the thought, and then you're like, I'm going to, I'm going to get, you know, my, my peers together and we're going to try to pass a bill. Like that's, you know, not many people do that. (laughs) No, it was an incredible experience. And I don't think I would have been able to do it without one of my colleagues. I'll give her a shout out, Liz Barnert, who's a pediatrician. Um, And we just kind of stuck to it the whole way, you know, that's that's awesome. It's powerful. I've mentioned on this show before, my parents played a role in passing legislation in Oregon to make Holocaust related education mandatory in the high school. So, you know, uh, now I know two people who passed laws. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) So, so Laura, this has been a really great conversation. You bring a lot to, to the table and a lot for us to think about. What, what closing thoughts do you have either about, you know, your, your primary focus and topic or around the choices we make as a, as a society in general? I guess what I want to say is that, you know, our individual choices matter, whether it's, you know, the choice to smile at your neighbor when you're walking along and making people feel comfortable. They're a different race than you, different age, gender. Um, Of course, we can't smile as well now with masks. (laughs) But I mean, like, it's not just about the big things. It's not just, you don't have to go out and pass a bill, right? Um, I think there's just like, you know, without trying to take on all the guilt and self-blame of like, oh my gosh, I should have been aware and I should have been less racist and what do I do now? It's like maybe just taking one step to read something different or get involved in your city council or you know, one step to just expand our community and expand our way of thinking. I really think all of that matters. Absolutely. We all can, we can all have an impact every, every single day. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's why I appreciate your podcast too. 
Well, and I appreciate you being here because you definitely uh, will make an <laughs> impact on on our listeners. So I really appreciate you being here today. It was a great, uh, a great, you, a great, great conversation. This has been another episode of Clear Choices. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you to Dr. Laura Abrams. Thank you so much for joining us. If you've been inspired and motivated by what you heard today, please subscribe to the show so you don't miss an episode. Post it on social media, invite friends, and let me know if you have any potential guests. While you're there, leave us a review. We'd love to connect with you as well, so check out our Facebook page by searching Clear Choices. I'm available for speaking engagements, and you can find more information by visiting our website at clearchoices.live. And all this can be found in our show notes. Join us next week for more inspiring stories that can help us all make clear choices. Thanks for listening.